We're up to mitzvah number 96. This is one of the many mitzvahs in a row that relate to the tabernacle and to the temple and to its accoutrements and vessels. This is a really fun one. Uh, of course, we are following the mitzvahs in the, or- in the order in which they appear in the Torah. And last mitzvah that we talked about was mitzvah number 95, which is the mitzvah to build the temple and the tabernacle and its vessels. And mitzvah number 96 is a specific law to not remove the carrying poles from the ark. Of course, there were many vessels in the Mishkan and the the temple, of course. And the mitzvah to actually construct the vessels is included in mitzvah number 95. And there's a specific mitzvah here, number 96. And that mitzvah is that in the ark, which is housed in the Holy of Holies, there are poles, two poles on either side. And there is a prohibition against removing those poles. You cannot remove those poles from the ark. Now, the ark was made as a series of nested boxes. You have three boxes, one inside the other. The the base one is, is gold. And then inside that, there is wood. And inside that, there is gold that actually conceals the wood. And therefore, the wood is totally invisible. And the idea is, is that there may be some wood there, but there's gold inside and out. And then, of course, it is wreathed by a golden crown. This is one of the three crowns featured in the temple. And this represents the three crowns of leadership that we have amongst our nation. The Ark, that represents the crown of Torah. Of course, the Ark was the receptacle of the Torah, of the tablets, both the broken tablets and the ones that were not broken. It was also what housed the Torah scroll, the actual Torah scroll written by Moshe. And therefore, the Ark represents Torah, and the crown that wreaths the Ark represents the crown of Torah. The second crown is the crown found on the table, the table which was not inside the Holy of Holies, but right outside the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary. The crown of the table represents the crown of the monarchy, and that is symbolic of of wealth and power and prestige and material abundance. And the third crown is the crown of the golden altar. So this is a little confusing because there are two altars. There's the outer altar, and then there's the inner altar, and the inner altar is sometimes called the gold altar. It's a much smaller altar, gold, small one, and that represents the crown of the priesthood. That's the crown around the golden altar. Now, the ark, of course, we know it's an iconic vessel. It is covered with the cover hewn from a single block of gold. On top, there are, of course, the two cherubs, these two figures that face each other, and they would swivel to represent the present state of the relationship between God and his people. So when God and the nation, they were on good terms, they would face each other, and God forbid, when they would be on bad terms, they would swivel away from each other. And it's almost like a mirror effect. If we turn away from God, God will turn away from us. So that's the cover on top of the ark. Inside the ark, as we mentioned, there are both the broken and the unbroken tablets. The first set of tablets that Moshe brought, he shattered at the foot of the mountain when he witnessed the revelry of the golden calf. And then... Several months later, he goes up to get a second set of tablets. He actually produces a second set of tablets, but God etches upon those second set of tablets the same content that was on the first set of tablets. And that too makes it down. This time it is preserved 
and not broken. Near or inside the ark is the Torah scroll that Moshe wrote. There's there's two different opinions. Either it was inside the ark together with the tablets or it was right next to the ark. Some even say that there was like a little shelf upon which it was placed. And there are other things around there maintained for posterity. For example, the vial of manna. After the manna falls, God tells the nation to preserve a vial of manna to remind us that whenever that we we really have the Almighty on our side and should he desire, he could just parachute to us food and all our necessities from heaven. Aaron's staff that sprouted almonds when his priesthood was challenged, that too was there near the ark. Now the ark, again, made out of gold. On either side, there were rings. On either corner, on the four corners, there were four rings and two long poles of gold-plated wood. They were inserted, they were fastened into those four rings and that was used for transport. And here is mitzvah number 96 regarding the poles of the ark that they cannot be removed. The Talmud notes that they could slide up and down within those rings, but they can never be fully removed and extracted. They must be permanently maintained in the rings. The poles must always, the staves as they're called, must always be fastened to the ark. Now the ark in general is important to note if we want to understand the representation and the symbolism of the Ark, it is teaching us everything we need to know about what it means to be a Torah scholar, what are the expectations of someone who wants to be a receptacle of God's Torah. As we mentioned, it has a crown around it, and that represents the crown of Torah. And it shows the primacy of Torah. The Talmud tells us, that Torah is more precious than pearls, which the Talmud understands that the Torah is more precious than he who enters into the Holy of Holies. If you have a bastard, so this is someone, the lowest strata of society, someone who is a pariah, someone who is rejected from society, they're a bastard, they're illegitimate. But they're a Torah scholar, the Talmud tells us, that they are loftier than the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, the most prestigious of our people, if the high priest is not a Torah scholar. Meaning, the Torah is the great equalizer. It's a total meritocracy. And the Talmud understands that this is on the interpretation of the verse, Yidkarahim Epninim, Torah is more precious than pearls, which the Talmud homiletically interprets as not pinim, which means pearls, but nichnas lifnai ulifnim, he who enters the inner sanctums, Torah is more precious than he who enters the inner sanctums, i.e. the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And therefore, if you are someone and your pedigree is really checkered, it's really, it's really scandalous. You're a bastard. You're, again, you cannot intermarry with the Jewish people. But nevertheless, you have Torah. You are loftier than the high priest who enters the Holy of Holies. And the commentaries explain, Torah is represented by the Ark. The Ark is permanently housed in the Holy of Holies. The Kohen Gadol, he's allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. Once a year with the requisite sacrifices and preparation and clothes, etc., he did go in temporarily. But what does he find once he enters there? He finds the ark. The ark was always there. And therefore the Torah scholar who is embodied, was represented by the ark, 
is higher than the high, than the high priest, because the high priest only enters occasionally, once a year, but the Torah scholar, as represented by the, by the ark, is there permanently. And therefore, if we study the structure, the layout, the instructions relating to the ark, we do find a lot of lessons about how someone who is emblematic of the ark must comport themselves. So, for example, the Talmud tells us that a Torah scholar has to be gold inside and outside. If you want to be like the ark, you have to have gold inside and gold outside. What does that mean? It means that you have to actually practice what you preach. You have to internally be refined and elevated and golden just as you are outside. Meaning you cannot portray yourself in a way that really does not match, that's not commensurate with who you are internally. You have to be gold inside and gold outside. The ark, we're told in the literature, lifted those that lifted it. Meaning that there were poles used for transport and the Levites would transport the ark. But the truth is, even though the ark, you know, it's, it's metal, gold's fairly heavy, you would imagine they would have to lug it, work really hard to schlep it. But no, the ark actually lifted those who lifted it. Meaning that if you were a Levite tasked with the transport of the ark, you may get your stretches in, warmed up, made sure that you were able to lift the ark. And you get there, and not only don't you need to work really hard to lift it, it actually lifts you. That was the magic of, of the ark. It lifts those that lift it. Meaning, everyone who comes into contact with the ark is elevated, is uplifted. Similarly, the Torah scholar has to lift all those who lift it. People come and they purport or they claim or they think that they're lifting up the ark. But when they come into contact with, with Torah, they find that the ark actually uplifts them. Moreover, there was another miracle that was featured in the ark. And that is that it does not take up any space. Meaning, if you were to measure just the dimensions of the Holy of Holies without the Ark, and then you put the Ark in, and then you measure from either end of the Ark to the end, so you would imagine it would be the size of the, you know, if you put something in the room, it takes up space. But somehow, when you measure the room, the dimensions of the room from either end of the Ark, it's the equivalent of the size of the entire room absent the ark, meaning it doesn't take up any space. And that's symbolic of humility, that someone who is like like the Torah doesn't take up all the space, doesn't overshadow everyone else who is in the room with them, is able to allow everyone else in the room to flourish and uplifts everyone that they come in contact with, does not push them down, makes room for others to flourish and doesn't take up all the space. To be a vessel of Torah, to be a proper vessel of Torah, you have to be like the ark, you have to have humility. The Talmud tells us that Torah is like water. There are many things that the Torah is compared to, one of them is water. The way the Talmud explains it is that you know, if you put water on top of a mountain, it trickles down. It does not settle on the high points. Instead, it 
It trickles down to the lowest point where it pools, where it collects. Similarly, Torah is like water. It does not settle in high places in people that have very high opinion of themselves and people that are very arrogant and aloof, very high. It goes to those who have humility. Now, in the ark, you'll find the tablets, both the tablets that were shattered and the tablets that, the second set of tablets that were not shattered. Says the Talmud, when we honor a Torah sage, we honor them regardless of whether or not they have preserved or even if they've forgotten their Torah. Suppose you have a Torah scholar and I don't know, God forbid, they get some sort of injury, they get dementia, they get Alzheimer's, and they're no longer in control of their faculties. So you would imagine, you know, it's tragic, but after all, the Torah is gone. The Torah has departed from them. And therefore, you could say perhaps that they don't deserve the same honor that they had previously. Says the Talmud, no. Both the tablets and the shattered, the shards, of the first set of tablets, were both together in the ark. A Torah scholar who has forgotten their Torah is like the shards of the broken set of tablets. When Moshe shattered those tablets at the foot of the mountain, the letters flew up to heaven. It became just like stones, bereft of Torah. But nevertheless, because they once housed the Torah within them, they are together with the regular, or the second set of tablets, in the ark. Moreover, perhaps we can suggest a true Torah scholar is someone who has had many failures along the way. This is a common motif in general, self-help. Oh, you know, you get up, knock down, get up, and all that. But it's featured in the Talmud. The Talmud says that the only way to be successful in your spiritual ascent is if you stumble along the way. Of course, there's the famous verse in Scripture, Sheva yipol tzadik vikam. The tzadik falls down seven times and they always get up. And our commentators tell us that this does not mean that even though they fell down, they still got up. It means that the only way to become a tzadik is indeed via those failures. The Talmud also rules that a Torah sage cannot properly identify the true approach to a Torah concept and cannot properly render a halachic opinion unless they've made some mistakes along the way. And therefore, perhaps we can suggest this too is embodied by the broken shards. In order for someone to be a complete Torah scholar, to really mirror the ark, they have to have both those shards, those mistakes along the way, and those tablets when you finally got it right. Now, it's interesting that the ark and what it contains are found in, in like a series of, of concealments. You know, the temple itself was concealed. And into the temple, there are inner sanctums where you walked progressively to places where you weren't allowed to go. You know, here here the Israelite could go, here the Kohen could go, here only the Kohen, Kohen God of the High Priest can go. And each each room is locked out. So they go through multiple layers to arrive at the at the ark. And you get to the ark and you say, where is the Torah? Where is the Torah? Oh, that's underneath the cover. And even the high priest doesn't open it. It's completely concealed. 
This also reveals to us another attribute of the Ark and of the Torah scholar, and that is the paramount importance of modesty. You have to have a golden receptacle. You have to have golden character in which to place the Torah. And that's the idea of Derech Eretz Kadam La Torah. You have to refine yourself before Torah, which is why, by the way, there is a tradition in the months between, or the, the weeks really, between Pesach, Passover, and Shavuos, where we received the Torah, there is a tradition to study the Purity Avos, the Ethics of the Fathers. Why? Because how do you prepare for Torah? First, you have to have the box. And the box is golden. First, you have to make yourself golden, refine your character, make yourself a receptacle worthy of handling, of housing Torah. But once you have the Torah, there's another cover. There is that concealment and there is that modesty. Now, of course, modesty is, is critical in general. You know, the prophet Micah famously tells us that it's one of the three things that God wants of us. One of the three things that God wants of us is to be modest. But specifically with regards to Torah, only when it is hidden does it endure. The Midrash tells us that the first set of tablets were different than the second set of tablets. The first set of tablets, it was done in a very public fashion. Everyone was there. Everyone witnessed it. It was a ceremony where everyone was privy to. And because it was done in an immodest fashion, everyone was there. Therefore, says the Midrash, there was Ainara, there was the evil eye. It was subject to being destroyed. And therefore, indeed, the first set of tablets were destroyed. The second set of tablets, it was done in a much more private way, in a much more modest way, and therefore it had continuity. There's nothing more precious than modesty. So this is some of the background to understand the ark and what it represents. Now we have one of the 613 mitzvahs, and that is to not remove the poles from the ark. Now the Sefer Chinuch, the book that we are using to navigate through the 613 mitzvahs, he has a technical question. He says, wait a minute. Is this really one of the 613 mitzvahs? To be counted amongst, amongst the 613, it has to be something that is that is a permanent mitzvah. If it's something that's a temporary, you know, one-off mitzvah, then it's not included in the 613. So this is something that you, you do it once and that's it. It was done once and it was never done again. You put it in, never took it out. Moreover, we don't we don't have an ark right now. We don't know where it is. It's MIA. It's missing. It's been missing for 2,500 years. So how is this one of the mitzvahs that is pertinent to us today? So he explains that there's a difference between a truly temporary one-off time-limited mitzvah and something which is included in the 613. So for example, prior to Sinai, the nation was told to prepare for three days. And that the animals and the sheep and the livestock shouldn't graze near the mountain. That really happened only once. And therefore, that cannot be included in the permanent 613. But when we have a mitzvah that really is still relevant today, but for some reason we cannot fulfill it because we're in exile or for some other ancillary reason, but in the event that we had an ark 
we would still not be allowed to remove the poles. Therefore, it is counted as an active mitzvah, and it is still one of the 613. Now, the Sefer Chinuch, he gives us some of the reasons behind this mitzvah. What's the reason behind this mitzvah? You know, if if, if you were to think of like mitzvahs, you had to list a hundred of them. You probably wouldn't even think about this. It's one of those lines. The verse says, oh, you got to put the poles in, put the staves in, and never remove it. It's one of the 613 mitzvahs. It's not one that we think about very often. What's the reason behind it? And again, as we always remind ourselves, this is not the actual reason. The reason why is because the Almighty, that's what the Almighty said. Nevertheless, it's important for us to try to bring it down to our level. Is there some sort of argument that we can make to ourselves, some sort of rationale to understand the reason behind this mitzvah? So the first thing he says, something very, very obvious. The poles were used for transport. When would you transport it? Why would you have to need, need to transport it? So, well, if it's time to move, if you're part of the, you know, the Mishran era, time to move, the cloud moves, everyone's in a huge rush to leave. Or sometimes in war, they would remove it in war as well, wartime. That was the first tank. So whenever there's a need to move it, there's always going to be a sense of urgency. And if there are no poles already there for transport, maybe people will be in such a rush to, to move it and they won't take the poles and they try to just lift it and it'll be too heavy and maybe they will drop it. So the first thing he tells us is just something which is very basic and that is we don't want to drop it. And therefore, the infrastructure supporting the ark must always be well-oiled and well-maintained and ready for operations at all times. Perhaps we can extend this, you know, all the infrastructure of Torah should likewise be ready to go at all times in order to make sure that there's never an instance where, where the Torah God forbid is, is dropped. The second reason that he tells us, it's a little bit more mysterious. He says that all the vessels have a lot of symbolism. And of course, we shared some of those ideas about the ark, but all of the vessels have symbolism associated with it. And because we recognize that the ark is really special and unique, and it has, you know, it's, it's the holiest of all the vessels, it's the one that was commanded to be done first, we don't want to lose the power of the ark and its symbolism even for a second. I want to add some more ideas that I saw in the literature about this question. You know, there were, there were two other vessels that also had staves, also had poles. Namely, the table and the inner golden altar. So we talked about the three vessels, the three golden vessels, at least, that have crowns. They all also had poles for transportation. But somehow, with respect to the table and the altar, there is no mitzvah that they must never be removed. The poles must never be removed from the rings. How come it's different with respect to the ark? If we have three different vessels that all have poles, how come only one of them has this mitzvah prohibition against removing those poles? 
So the commentators say, this is found in, in a lot of different places, the Meshachachma amongst others. They say that the, the Ark itself represents Torah. The poles, that represents the, the supporting infrastructure of Torah. And the way the Meshachachma says it, it represents the people who are willing to contribute as outsiders almost. They want to have a say. They want to contribute. They want to be involved in some way in the Torah enterprise. And they want to support it. They want to place it on their shoulders. And therefore, it's important for us to realize that we should not think of the poles as being separate from the Torah. If someone takes upon themselves, upon their shoulders... The responsibility to uphold Torah, even if they're not Torah itself, they want to uphold it, they want to support it. They are part of the enterprise and they can never be extracted. They can never be removed from the Torah itself. When someone wants to support it, when someone is involved as an outsider, they're never removed. They're always part of this enterprise. Their contribution is never separate from the Torah itself. And that's the idea that we've seen many times in the Yesachar Zevulan bargain. Remember that? There are two sons of Jacob. One Yesachar, Issachar, and one Zevulan. And they had a bargain. They had an agreement. Yesachar was the great scholar. He was capable of all the advanced calculations and he would be involved in, in scholarship. And Zevulan was the businessman, was the mogul, was someone who was always involved in commerce and trade. And they made a deal. Yisachar, you study, and I'm going to support your study, and I'm going to take 50% of the rewards. And Zvulun, you go do business, and I'm going to dedicate my study towards the success of your business, and I'm going to take half of those spoils. And that's a way of, you know, comparative advantage. Let every person do what they need to do, and the total benefit of that is that everyone, everyone is uplifted. Yisachar, the Torah scholar, has the material backing of Zevulon. And Zevulon, who is involved in, in commerce and trade and all these earthly things, but they have the support of the Torah study of Yisachar, and they split the rewards of both endeavors equally. And that's the idea. If Yisachar is the Ark, Zevulon is the Poles, and they are always welded together. They're always fastened to each other. This is just a complete team, and you can never remove the poles of Zevulon from the Ark of Yisachar. Rav Hirsch has a beautiful idea, just to round this out. He says that the, the poles found on the sides of the Ark, they symbolize the idea that Torah is always portable. No matter where you are, no matter what situation you're in, no matter what land and faraway land the exile may have brought you to, you have to realize that there's an element of portability with the Torah. And you can never forget that. Don't think that the Torah, well, from Zion emanates the law. The law comes from from Zion. If you're in Zion, great. If you're out of Zion, you're someplace in Germany, someplace in the Far East, you're in even places as far as Texas. You're far away from Torah. What business do you have involving yourself in Torah? Find the industry of your location. No, we can never forget that the Torah is transportable. It is with us wherever we may be. I thought to conclude this discussion by talking about the location of the Ark today. So, of course, 
Betzalel, under the auspices of Moshe, they construct the Ark. And it plays a very important role in the story of the Jewish people until it really disappears. It's, of course, it's in the Mishkan. It's taken out periodically, but it's in the Mishkan. Eventually, it is moved in a very dramatic way, we should say, to the actual temple. And it's there for 400 years. And then it just disappears. In the second temple, we didn't have the Ark. In the Holy of Holies, the Mishnah tells us, there was a stone. It's the Evan Shasia, the foundation stone. And it was a few fingers elevated above the ground. And the high priest of Yom Kippur, because there was no Ark, would do the services of Yom Kippur upon that stone. And that stone, we're told, is the foundation stone, the first stone they might have used to create the world. Where is the Ark? It is gone to places unknown. Now, there is a theory, or it's a widely accepted theory, that the the rock underneath the Dome of the Rock is none other than the same rock featured in our literature that is the foundation stone upon which the services were done in the Second Temple. And the problem is that our Mishnah says there was only a few fingers elevated above the ground. Today, if you could go to the Dome of the Rock, of course, it's not allowed for Jews and not allowed to go there because that's the actual location of the Temple. Unless you're ritually pure, you can't walk in there. But if you look at pictures of the Dome of the Rock, it's, it's much taller than a few fingers above the ground. So how is it possible if this is the same stone, why is there such a big discrepancy in the height of this stone? So one of the answers is, well, when Hadrian, when he plowed the mountains, mentioned last time that the second temple is compared to, to a field because a field was plowed. And Hadrian, he, after the temple was destroyed, he plowed the temple mount to lower the size of the mountain in order to kind of stick it to the Jews. And therefore, maybe that revealed by raising the mountain, raising with a Z, that revealed more of the bedrock. And therefore, during the second temple, it was only elevated a few inches above the ground after the temple's destroyed and Hadrian raises the mountain, he's exposing more and more of the bedrock. That is one theory. There's a second theory, and that is that there were furious excavations in an attempt to find the Ark. There was an understanding that the Ark was buried somewhere deep beneath the temple. When Solomon built it, he built a network of caves and all kinds of hidden places underneath the temple, and that's where it's stored. And therefore, people in desperate search for the Ark were looking for it, and they excavated more of the bedrock. It is our understanding that most likely it is still there somewhere. And I would imagine if if and when, please God, we find the ark, those staves, those poles will still be in them intact as they have been in fulfillment of this mitzvah, mitzvah number 96, to not remove the poles from the ark. Of course, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.